RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. When Ben Bravery was in his 20s, he was diagnosed with stage 3 colorectal cancer. It meant, of course, spending time in and out of doctors' rooms and hospital wards. It led to being frustrated and annoyed with the health system, which placed grades over patient bedside manner and being confronted with overworked and stressed medical staff. The diagnosis and treatment of his cancer was a turning point in many ways. Once treated, he decided to enact change in the health system by becoming a doctor himself. It was a massive decision to change gear. Ben already had a career as a zoologist. He loved animals and his job provided stability in his life. But his 18 months of treatment made him reflect on the priorities in his life. He's since written a book. It's called The Patient Doctor, where he shines a light on what needs to change to ensure the patient is at the heart of healthcare. First, Ben takes us back before the diagnosis. He tells Jeff Waters he always wanted to be a zoologist ever since he could remember. I think I was born with an obsession or fascination with animals, all things animal. And uh, I don't know exactly where it came from, but I remember it being there from a young age. Uh, I remember watching a documentary when I was about six on the tuna industry. This was back in the late 80s. And um, it was a time when we were becoming more aware of dolphins and how they were being harmed in that process. And I remember I got to one point in the documentary and I just burst into tears. I had this um, you know, sensitivity for other animals and wanting to protect them, which is why I think I went into conservation. My life, you know, I had to make that happen though. I was born into a working class family who only one other member uh, had ever finished high school and nobody uh, certainly had been to university. Nobody had spent any time outside of Australia. People kind of got working class jobs. They worked very hard, a strong work ethic, which came to help me later in medicine. But you, you know, the idea was that you could earn instead of learn You could build your way up a chain, kind of stay local, spend a lot of time around family and keep plugging away. So it was a big decision, actually, to break that mould and choose to go to university and then study something which was a bit esoteric to my family, zoology. They unfortunately were disappointed when they learnt that it didn't mean I worked in a zoo, which I think is what they all, you know, romanticise about the zoologist. But no, I was just a scientist plugging away on animal data, writing reports, reading scientific papers and and that kind of thing. So working as a zoologist and a science communicator, at the age of 28 years old, you were diagnosed with stage 3 bowel cancer. Now, after surviving 18 months of treatment and then going back to work, nearing 30, you decided to become a doctor after being a zoologist At what point did you think you'd begin medicine and how did you decide to commit to returning to study full-time? It was a huge decision. And unfortunately, you know, I'd love one of those stories where it's a light bulb moment, it pings off, I yell out, aha, I need to become a doctor. It didn't happen that way. It's something that evolved slowly over time. As you mentioned, I did spend a lot of time as a cancer patient I'm still a cancer patient with a schedule of checkups, of course, and surveillance. 
But I got to the end of that treatment, spat back into normal life, so to speak. And it took a little while to realize that things inside me had changed somewhat. It was more than the scar, you know, the laparotomy scar and the healing stoma, the anticoagulants for the PEs I developed after chemo, you know, the peripheral neuropathy. I changed inside and I think what I wanted to do in the world had changed. I went back to my old life though because I wanted normality. I wanted to be 30, working, uh, starting a family, saving for a house, all the things that had effectively been put on hold when I got sick. And I'd had to watch my friends, sometimes with jealousy, go on and develop and create. I rushed back and I quickly realized that I wasn't satisfied in that work anymore. So I changed jobs, thinking that was the issue. And then six months into that job, I had the same problem. You know, I got frustrated easily. I didn't feel satisfied at work. I wasn't healthy. I just wasn't happy. So I decided to take a whole year off. And I think that was valuable because it allowed me to really regroup. It allowed me to process cancer, think about how it had changed me. And I went back to some of my journals during that time and some of the cancer work that I'd been doing since that and realized that there are a few things in the health system that I still had ideas about what I wanted to fix and improve upon. I also really, really wanted to give back to the system. My surgical team were incredible. I got world-class treatment in a timely way, delivered with speed and professionalism. I was really grateful for being alive. And in the public system, of course, I didn't pay a cent for any of that radiation, chemotherapy or multiple surgeries. Now, on top of all of this, you wrote a memoir, The Patient Doctor, and in it you reflect on your time as a patient and what frustrated you about the hospital system, as well as how you truly felt patients were more disempowered about their own treatment than they should be. Why did you write that book? I've written the book because it's the right time in my career. So I'm four years out of medical school. I'm eight years since I decided to go and become a doctor. And I'm 10 years since my cancer diagnosis. It's a good time for all these things to consolidate in my mind. I went to medical school to make things better for patients and then realized that the doctor side of the patient-doctor equation was also struggling. I saw sometimes an aggressive, ultra-competitive education environment. I sometimes saw inappropriate behavior or bullying once we were out in the wards. I saw junior doctor colleagues depressed, anxious, expressing suicidal thoughts. And it all seemed absurd to me. I, I had no idea when I entered this world and when I crossed over from patient to doctor that this side was hurting. And there seemed to be a general dissatisfaction with the state of things. And it, it occurred to me that both sides of the patient-doctor relationship were frustrated. I wanted to put these ideas together because I do wear both of these hats still. I've got solid experience as a cancer patient. I've got growing experience as a doctor. And I'm able to see both sides of this equation. And the idea here is that by being both of them, I can help each other better understand the other side. I'm a doctor patient and a patient doctor. I went into this business to try and make things better. And I wanted to learn the language of medicine. 
I wanted to understand how doctors think and why they make the decisions they do and the pressures they're under. And I'm in that and I'm living it. And my understanding of the challenges facing our health system are much more complicated now. They're more informed, which I think is natural. And the idea is that the book becomes a conversation point and that both sides can, by understanding each other, demand change. Because if they're aligned, the system has to adapt. Well, with your perspective as both a patient and a doctor, what can you tell us? What do you think is wrong with the system? And what are some of the insights that you can share with us about that? What needs to be done to change the system to make it better? So I don't pretend to have all the answers. Uh, It's a big, broad question. (laughs) It's a big, broad system. The health system is very complicated. It's probably one of the most complicated things that humans have built on Earth. And there are lots of moving parts and there are lots of pressures. And the health system is front page news now, almost on a daily basis, thanks to the pandemic. But the things I write about were there before the pandemic. The pandemic has just made all of them come to the surface in a dramatic way. There's a few things that I think we could do that occurred to me along the pipeline. So one of them is, as a patient, I often felt like I didn't have a lot of information or power. Sometimes you can't have that power. It is unrealistic to expect me to understand the anatomy and the treatments as much as the healthcare people around me. That's not the kind of power I'm talking about. It's a power where you are empowered to ask questions, to discuss your case, to express your fears, something that doctors aren't very good at talking about, but does get in the way of patient decision-making. Once I got to medical school, I thought that a lot of the selection of medical students was quite narrow. We were picking the same type of people over and over again. We were selecting people based on exam performance and grades, which are of course very important. You want your doctor to know as much as they can and be as sophisticated in their understanding. But there's other things we could be selecting for as well as requesting the skills needed to acquire that knowledge. We should be letting people into medical school with broader lived experience, both of illness and from other cultural backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds, people who have experienced poverty, people who have experienced domestic violence, people who maybe have experienced addiction, if not themselves, in their family. There's a whole range of experiences we could include that would make the learning of medicine and then the practice of medicine richer because we would introduce those experiences into the core and they'd be able to filter through or ripple through the system. Once those students are in, I think we need to radically change the way we teach them. I think we're using an old system with a bloated curriculum And as we've understood more about medicine, we've just piled more into it and we've expected these poor young people to just continue to absorb it, but it's come at a cost. I think we should reward skills that we know are very important as doctors once you're working, things like teamwork and attitude and leadership and compassion. We shouldn't expect that they're just there and we shouldn't expect that they'll stay there because there's really good data to show that these skills that I've just mentioned actually decline as we learn more medicine. They decline throughout the lifespan of a career. And that's really unfortunate. Once you have these diverse medical students with these amazing skill sets, you've got to protect them. The system, again, doesn't reward the kinds of things that matter. 
Yes, technical knowledge is important. I've never debated that. But there is a lot about the doctor-patient relationship and about the doctor-patient environment that lets patients down. It's the things they complain about. It's the things they remember long after a consult, long after a successful surgery, maybe a rolling of the eyes or a dismissed question or a hurried ward round. These things stay with patients and they don't need to because they're detracting from the amazing work that's being done. Again, a lot of this would come down to looking at doctor-patient ratios, looking at the volume that is expected in training, thinking very carefully about that tension between our work and our training and getting better alignment between the college and the people that employ us, the hospitals, to alleviate a lot of that tension rather than just expecting us to handle it. From a purely HR perspective, there's so much we could do to make the environment nicer. Having worked in the non-medical world, I'm aghast at the things that are expected to do. You know, a lot of junior doctors still fight to be paid overtime. They still fight to work safe hours. They fight for their days off. They fight for proper briefing and evaluations and structured learning. A lot of the stuff that the rest of the society has just moved on with and medicine has been left behind. And I think all of the things, I know I'm giving you a long answer, but all of this chips away at the capacity of a doctor to heal and to heal in a way that the patient deserves. Now, you've chosen psychiatry as a specialty, training to become a consultant. What interested you in psychiatry? This was a, an eight ball in a way because I didn't go to medicine to become a psychiatrist. I went to become naturally a medical oncologist. I thought that's where I would end up. I was a little bit disappointed with the approach to other forms of medicine in the other disciplines. I felt a lot of the time patients were reduced to problems, to symptoms, to organs. And a lot of that has, has come about because of pressure and demand on the system and the need to treat a large number of people with limited resources. But some of it comes about from the way we collect histories and reduce people to problems in order to make our decisions. And I felt that in psychiatry, there was still an attempt to consider the whole person. They still take a long history. They are rewarded for spending time with the patient. And I was drawn to the idea that they don't call it a doctor-patient relationship. They call it an alliance. And I think that's a really beautiful thing that I felt like a lot of the other specialties had forgotten along the way. And I felt like I wanted to go in and fully understand the human condition the way doctors think, the way patients think, the way that to heal. And my idea is then to get those skills and then foster dialogue with the other specialties, foster dialogue with healthcare environments and ensure that those things that psychiatrists value and take seriously are then populated throughout the system. Dr. Ben Bravery. RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.